You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the United States Institute of Peace, we're delighted to welcome everyone to this very special event. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the head of USIP, which was established by the US Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. The Institute is very proud to be part of the many initiatives that promote reconciliation, cooperation, and deeper understanding in the wake of the war between the United States and Vietnam, and also between the US and Laos, and the US and Cambodia. Starting last year, USIP launched the Vietnam War Legacies and Reconciliation Initiative, which focuses on supporting the many efforts already underway to help resolve war legacies, which include, of course, Agent Orange, landmine clearance, unexploded ordnance, and support to persons with disabilities. The dialogue we are hosting today and tomorrow is one of the pillars of this initiative. For more than 40 years, the US and Vietnam have worked together on reconciliation. This extraordinary effort, which has evolved from accounting for missing US personnel to the US now assisting the government of Vietnam in its efforts to recover and identify its own war dead, represents one of the longest and most successful reconciliation processes in recent history. This work is supported by the US government, the US Congress, veterans organizations, and countless institutions across the United States. We would like to take this moment to single out of the many people who have been part of this reconciliation, the leadership of Senator Patrick Leahy, who is one of the longest serving senators in America's history, and who before retiring this January, will be leading a congressional delegation to the region to reaffirm Congress's commitment to war legacy cooperation. To start today's event, USIP is honored to host Mr. Michael Schieffer, the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Asia in the United States Agency for International Development. Mr. Schieffer assumed this important role after spending a decade as a senior advisor and counselor on the professional staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Mr. Schieffer has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia, worked for the Stanley Foundation, received a Council on Foreign Relations Hitachi International Affairs Fellowship in Japan, and was the Senior National Security Advisor and Legislative Director for Senator Dianne Feinstein. I hope everyone joins me in welcoming Assistant Administrator Schieffer and the Institute's Director for Southeast Asia, Brian Harding, for our opening conversation. Brian. Well, thank you very much, Lise, uh, for the introduction and also your support to the Vietnam War Legacies and Reconciliation Initiative here at USIP. Um, 
You've already introduced Michael. I think if you've paid any attention to the program, you'll see that we have an in incredible lineup. We're gonna be doing this in two parts. First, uh, some distinguished current and former officials, and then we're going to hear from two truly extraordinary uh, uh, private citizens who have really devoted their lives uh, to these issues as well. So being that Michael has been introduced, uh, and, I don't th and I think I'm the one that, that people are least interested in hearing from, I'll just turn straight to Michael, and I'll introduce our other speakers after Michael uh, finishes his initial remarks. Thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you, Lisa, and, and thank you to, to USIP for, for organizing this uh, important conversation. Uh, I, I will add that uh, the, the, the one piece that uh, you forgot in the introduction was that uh, in addition to all the other things I've done professionally, um, every now and then I have managed to help or at least not get in the way of Tim, uh, Tim Reeser and, and Senator Leahy. Uh, so that, that may be my biggest accomplishment uh, in all my years in the, in, in the Senate. Um, the title of uh, today's plenary, uh, as you know, is Healing from the Wounds of War. Uh, healing from anything, especially war, is, is a journey. Consequences of war don't disappear when the war is over. Wounds heal, but the process can be painful, and the trauma can be carried down for generations. Legacies of war affect our bodies, our memories, our friendships, our politics, even our very soil. They shape our present and our future. America and Vietnam, once enemies, now friends, know and understand this very well. Uh, as I was reflecting on the discussion today, uh, I thought of my own journey uh, and how fitting it is that my first public event, this is my debut uh, as assistant administrator, uh, my first public uh, event uh, in my new job uh, is on Vietnam. Uh, as a child, I played Vietnam War in the sandbox at my school. Uh, and I remember one summer when my favorite swimming teacher uh, at the Keybridge Marriott right across the river here uh, just disappeared, uh, and my parents had to explain to me that he went to, to Vietnam, uh, and he never came back. Uh, later, growing up in New York, I remember how delighted my parents were when they, that's reassuring. Uh, I remember how um, delighted my parents were when they got to be friends with uh, diplomats from Vietnam's mission to the United Nations. This was in the days before uh, normalization, uh, who lived uh, just the floor uh, below us in our, uh, in our apartment complex. Uh, and then some years later, uh, after my father died, uh, I went to Vietnam with my backpack for, for a month uh, and over some delicious, uh, and it really was delicious, Chak uh, Vong in, in Hanoi, I finally for the first time uh, broke down in tears. Uh, and it was on a bench overlooking uh, Hun Kim Lake uh, that I did my, my morning for my father uh, and started that healing journey for, for myself. Uh, since then, I've been able to travel to Vietnam in my work for the Senate. I've been able to travel there accompanying a Secretary of Defense, uh, something that would have been unheard of at, at one point in our relationship. Uh, I've been able to help Tim every now and then. Uh, and soon I hope to be able to travel to Vietnam uh, on behalf of USAID. Uh, so Vietnam and our relationship uh, and our journey together has been part of my consciousness since I've been conscious. Uh, and I've been fortunate to travel along and through our different uh, paths and our partnership and our healing uh, for my entire personal and, and professional life. 
Uh, there are others, however, for whom the healing is more challenging. Uh, I'd like to share with you this morning the, the story of Tian Nan, who lives with his family in Wei province uh, and is growing up with developmental disabilities. His parents, Nguyen and Fuang, have concerns early on. He would get easily frustrated and throw tantrums. He couldn't tell them what he needed. Tian wasn't like other children. His parents knew they needed support. But in Vietnam, families like Tian's don't have easy access to health specialists. Families like Tian's, however, need special care. Their children deserve it in order to thrive. And as our two nations continue our journey to healing, we have an obligation to seek to provide it. Across Vietnam, USAID and our partners support children with disabilities and help parents improve their ability to care for their children. We help clinics and hospitals. Uh, we help them screen for disabilities as part of routine health checks. We train rehabilitation professionals to get help to the people they need. Uh, and we helped Vietnam institute its first ever occupational uh, and speech and language therapy courses uh, in its universities. And with our Vietnamese partners, we're seeing results. In the last five years, Vietnam's workforce of skilled rehabilitation practitioners has expanded, making these services available in some districts for the first time, including in Thanh Ninh and Binh Phuc, which now have rehabilitation units staffed with trained and licensed practitioners in each and every one of their districts. And Tien's life is improving as well. His father is able to apply the training he received from USAID, and our partners uh, and both parents are more confident raising their son. Tian is able to help with chores at home and go to school. That is what healing looks like for children, for families, uh, and for countries. Over the 27 years since normalization, our two countries have traveled on an incredible journey together, particularly the past decade in our comprehensive partnership and as we, build, as we seek to build a strategic partnership based on our genuine friendship. USAID's current efforts in Vietnam focus on three areas in particular, disabilities assistance, dioxin remediation, and identification of the deceased. Let me talk a little bit about each of these areas. Thanks to the historic legislation spearheaded by Senator Leahy, in 1991, USAID began a program designed to address one of the government of Vietnam's express priorities on the path towards normalizing relations. This was the need of Vietnam's war wounded, primarily the 250,000 amputees who had minimal, if any, access to appropriate prosthetic or rehabilitation services. USAID supported the local production and fitting of prosthetic limbs and wheelchairs in partnership with the Vietnamese government and American NGOs. We provided high quality prosthetic and rehabilitation training for local staff, procure the materials and equipment, and help construct needed facilities. Since then, our disability programming in Vietnam has grown significantly. We have contributed approximately $140 million in assistance to persons with disabilities over the past 30 years. And as we know, the history of war also remains in Vietnam's soil. In close partnership with the government of Vietnam, USAID is working to remediate two of Vietnam's three identified hotspots of remaining Agent Orange contamination. We know that can, together we can be successful in these efforts. Across six years, we collaborated with a U.S. small business and a global leader in thermal soil treatment to make Da Nang a cleaner and safer city, with the airport now expanding to utilize 75 acres of clean land. We cleaned up the airport by processing, 
meaning cooking in batches over 600 degrees, enough dirt to fill 56 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Today, we are working closely with Vietnam to replicate this success at Bien Hoa Air Base, the largest remaining hotspot of dioxin contamination, and an enormous challenge that will involve four times the volume of soil that was handled at Da Nang. The United States has so far invested over 160 million towards dioxin remediation at Bien Hoa. Even as we address the legacies of war for today and for the future, we must be mindful that healing also requires our continued attention to address wounds that remain open from the past. With the Department of Defense, we are moving forward with new technology to work with the government of Vietnam to improve its means of identifying missing Vietnamese from the war. We are honored to contribute to this absolutely crucial effort. Families deserve the closure of seeing their loved ones at rest. We cannot forget, ignore, or deny the legacies of the past. We will continue to do our part to address and resolve them, and in so doing, open up the possibilities for the future. Right now, in addition to the areas I discussed, the US and Vietnam partner across a wide array of shared priorities, including improving governance and transparency while strengthening inclusive economic growth, addressing complex environmental challenges such as ocean plastics and the future of the Mekong Delta, uh, in assisting Vietnam in its energy transition to meet its ambitious COP26 goals, increasing student exchanges and higher education cooperation to create a 21st century workforce, global health security cooperation to detect and monitor emerging pandemic threats, and to strengthen health systems resilience in the face of future crisis. Together, these cooperative efforts have helped both our nations heal from the past and to open the door to expanding and deepening the partnership we enjoy today. They promote a more open, secure, and prosperous Vietnam and a more open, secure, and prosperous Indo-Pacific region. I look forward to uh, continuing this important work with you and to realize this future for Vietnam and its people. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for, for taking the time. I, I, you know, as Lise mentioned earlier, I think Michael's in his second week on the job, um, but for a lot of reasons, um, um, you know, doesn't need a lot of briefing or, or, or getting up to speed because of the role he played in the Congress. And I think, as we've already alluded to with Senator Leahy's role and others, the role of Congress in this conversation in U.S.-Vietnam relations um, is, is fundamental. And so I think anybody who's in this room uh, is thrilled to see you in this job. Uh, time is of the essence, uh, and, and hopefully with a man who, who knows the Congress so well, uh, we can seize this moment here in the, this in, important time. I'm going to introduce our second speaker in a moment, but I'll just first say uh, to those who are in the room here, uh, there will be time for a question and answer. Uh, if you can write your questions down on paper that I understand has been provided, uh, Andrew Wells Dong, who, who's really running the show here from, from the front row as our uh, director of our uh, uh, War Legacies and Reconciliation Project will read those questions after we get uh, through our initial remarks. But our next speaker will be Ambassador Ton Nu Tin Nin, uh, who is a, has been a university lecturer, a career diplomat, uh, and an elected official in Vietnam. Among her many uh, important roles, she was Vietnam's ambassador to the European Union in Belgium. She was vice chair of the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee in the National Assembly. Uh, today, she is the president of the Ho Chi Minh City Peace and Development Foundation. And as I understand it, uh, um, if you watch uh, Vietnamese media, you, uh, you know Ambassador Nin. So over to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, you might wonder why I was invited 
by Andrew Wells Dang to, to participate in this uh, dialogue, in this conference. Uh, as a multilateralist diplomat, I remember uh, going to uh, New York every year for about 10 years. And I was therefore in contact with a lot of American officials and American friends, as well as members of the Vietnamese American community. And in my capacity as vice chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the National Assembly, I was in charge of relations with uh, Europe and uh, America. So, uh, and with that, I, I was happy to be the co-chair of the uh, first ever uh, US-Vietnam dialogue group on Agent Orange dioxin. Uh, that uh, the, the then president of Ford Foundation, Susan Beresford, spearheaded. Um, so in other words, uh, I personally uh, have been involved with matters uh, uh, US-Vietnam. So today, uh, I will take a, an approach of a reflective approach. Uh, this is an opportunity for, for us, for me anyway, to uh, take stock of what we have achieved together in terms of post-war, post-conflict peace building, which is a complex, difficult process, not easy at all. Within the uh, 10 minutes allotted to each of us um, on, the, on this dense and complex topic um, of healing the wounds of war, I've chosen to focus on four points to reflect on these angles and layers in order to open perspectives for more in-depth, specific discussion within panel 1B. Since the end of the war, which was in all respects an existentially defining traumatic experience for those involved and concerned, as we just heard, Vietnam and the US, Vietnamese and American people have been engaged on a singular joint journey of post-war peace building through painstaking normalization towards today's broad, multifaceted, and deepening bilateral ties. This has been a challenging, complex, but rewarding process, because it did not only emanate from and involve the two governments and officials on both sides, but was also importantly embraced and actively pursued by civil society entities, as well as men and women of goodwill in Vietnam and the US. I would be remiss not to pay homage here to Senator Patrick Leahy and Tim Reza, who is among us. Uh, and we know the sad news that Senator Leahy will retire very soon, but before he retires, we will welcome him with open arms uh, in Vietnam for his 
I think, last official. I'm sure not his last, but his last official visit uh, to Vietnam. He has been on the official's side, perhaps the most steadfast and effective contributor to uh, post-war peace building and uh, uh, remediation. Uh, but I wish to mention citizens, men and women of goodwill and uh, civil society entities. For example, on the U.S. side, Geraldine uh, Brousseau and her peace trees. You see, Geraldine Brousseau lost her brother, who was a, uh, a pilot, and his plane was down in the northern part of, of Vietnam. Now, she not only managed to overcome, but she started this project in Quang Ngai province. Uh, she brought the fiancé of her late brother, and many years later, she even brought her mother. It was not easy to do, but you know, she herself, with her Pistris project, you know, over the years, and her, with her family members, she has been a symbol of the kind of overcoming and healing the wounds of war of one's own uh, will, uh, courage, and determination. Uh, I'd like to also mention Chuck Searcy, uh, a Vietnam veteran, and re Renew, along with Veterans for Peace. Just these two, uh, two sort of civil society uh, examples on the U.S. side. On the Vietnamese side, of course, I could mention the Vietnam-USA uh, society or the, th the throngs of visitors, including American, who visit the War Legacies Museum in Vietnam. And if you haven't been there on one of your visits to, to Saigon Ho Chi Minh City, go there. Don't, don't worry that it's going to be, you know, sort of heavy and this. I mean, it's there to, not to forget, but also to move forward. And so I encourage you to, to go there. Now, normalization of Vietnam-U.S. relations has benefited early on from quasi-unanimous support from the government and the people in Vietnam. The process in the U.S. has been more gradual and in particular, unfortunately, has faced some vocal resistance from some inflexible members of the Vietnamese American uh, community. But should we not strive to make that joint journey move towards some extent and form of reconciliation? which clearly is a bolder, qualitative next step for the whole actors on both sides. Normalization is the first step. Reconciliation is the next qualitative step. Now, because the notion of reconciliation is sensitive, especially for some segments of the Vietnamese-American community, let me at this point in time stress the following. First, 
nearly all families in Vietnam, including mine, had members on both sides of the conflict. It is time, 50 years after the end of the war, to make our own peace among Vietnamese, beyond ideology and politics. To make this happen, let us identify common ground, common interests, and promote mutual engagement, exchanges, and cooperation, as is gradually happening on the ground with second and third post-war generation Vietnamese nationals and Vietnamese Americans. David Tai, back in Vietnam from Seattle in 1998, soon after normalization, set up the now ubiquitous Highlands coffee, coffee shop chain. But today, young Vietnamese Americans are also settling down in Vietnam, starting businesses such as a gin distillery with flavor ingredients from local ethnic minorities from the north and from the central highlands, or a Gen Z media platform which reaches out to millions. Meanwhile, someone who experienced the hardships and losses of war during her childhood and adolescence in Viet northern Vietnam has now made a name for herself with the success of her first novel in English, The Mountains Sing, winner of the 2020 Lanan Literary Award Fellowship for contribution to peace and reconciliation. On the Vietnamese side, uh, properly speaking, there may be four factors explaining the support for and progress of normalization and reconciliation between the two former adversaries. First is, I believe, Vietnam's deep-rooted sense of nationhood, tested through centuries of trials and tribulations, but which, once the country independent, reunified, and at peace, expresses itself in a shared thirst for and powerful drive towards prosperity and development. It was Ho Chi Minh who kept reminding us during the decolonization struggle not to forget the enemy within, that is, illiteracy, ignorance, and poverty. In other words, our people, the Vietnamese people, are fortunate that they are forward-looking and progress-minded. Another dimension may be the Buddhist influence with its culture of forbearance, which shuns extremism and which cultivates accommodation. A third factor, I believe, is Vietnamese society's cohesive tendencies, fostered by a strong sense of belonging, belonging within the framework of extended family ties, clan community, and native place frameworks. The fourth factor is 
the pragmatism, the realism uh, of Vietnam and the Vietnamese in dealing with the past and the present and also with the outside world. From conflict with several major powers, moving to peaceful, mutually beneficial relations with them, based on a realistic appraisal of common ground, shared interests, and respective strengths and weaknesses through history to the present day, Vietnam has indeed honed its skills at living and working with major powers. Let us heal from the past by joining minds and hearts to build the future. You may have noticed I put minds first <laughs> for a reason. We can discuss that during the panel. Some might opt for hearts first, but from what I said before that, makes sense. Hearts are sometimes blind. <laughs> minds are supposed to be sort of uh, shining and bright, so and help the heart, you know, in the right direction. Now, although there is a sing definitely a singularity to the U.S.-Vietnam post-war peace building, from what was stated earlier, there may be some considerations of possible relevance to other post-conflict situations in the world. I will mention two. First, importance of respect for cultural identity and community spirit, as well as the importance of sharing a shared sense of nationhood. Second, agree to disagree on certain matters, and that applies to everyone, both Vietnamese and American. But identify common ground and interests and encourage joint projects involving younger generations. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Ambassador Nguyen. That was fantastic. Um, and so many threads to pick up. And, and just to pick up on the last one, I mean, this is a lot of what we're trying to think about here at USIP. There's so much more work to do in the US-Vietnam story, but where else? What lessons can we draw, draw from this? Um, our third and final panelist, before we head to a, a short question and answer period, uh, is Jed Royal, who um, we just connected, it turns out, for the first time in over 10 years. Jed is also very new to his job. Um, he's the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific uh, Security Affairs. And uh, as we were saying earlier, it turns out over the last several years, he's just had an incredibly diverse and impressive uh, tour around all sorts of important parts of the Department of Defense. He's a career member of the Senior Executive Service. His most recent uh, position was as Deputy Director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. Uh, he also served at the U.S. Mission to NATO um, and in a variety of other positions in OSD policy. He was the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Central Asia. He also worked at the NSC and he started his career uh, on Capitol Hill in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee staff. Uh, so if uh, Jed, I'm guessing, is a new, a new face for many people in this room, but, but you can be assured that uh, uh, he, he's one of the top uh, career policy officials, and we're all uh, and we're absolutely thrilled that he's in this new position. So over to you, Jen. Ryan, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you, and thank you, Lise and Brian, and all of your colleagues for 
the work that you're doing here, for the, the work of the commission uh, in bringing light to these issues. It's just extraordinarily important for us to uh, continue to conduct policy and do policy development with an eye of reflection on the past. And, uh, and I think that the work you're doing here is absolutely crucial for, for all of the policy development folks in, in my department and throughout the U.S. government to be mindful of these issues. So thank, thank you very much uh, for your work here. It's an honor for me to speak with all of you today as we continue to build upon 27 years of work toward the mutual goal of addressing war legacies and strengthening trust and cooperation between our two governments. Um, I want to also start by thanking you for uh, the longstanding commitment and efforts to account for missing U.S. service members, which has contributed to strong support uh, for our bilateral partnership. The mission that is uh, being conducted here is important on so many levels, and it's a privilege for me to be able to share with you some of the uh, thoughts on the relationship between this mission expanding our areas of cooperation and on some broader security interests uh, in the region. To date and since the cessation of the conflict, Vietnam has helped identify more than 700 Americans killed in the war and repatriated them to their families for burial with full military honors. The United States goal is to reciprocate these efforts and we have taken some important steps to do so. Last year marked one such step when Secretary Austin and Minister Young decided to a new initiative incorporating DOD-funded state-of-the-art research from Harvard University to help Vietnam account for and recover the remains of its fallen service members. And so far, the results have been very promising. We are particularly sensitive to the fact that we must act quickly as the availability of witnesses diminishes and Vietnam's landscape and terrain changes. And so to that end, just last month during the U.S.-Vietnam uh, Defense Policy Dialogue in Hanoi, Assistant Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner provided Vietnam's leadership with a third tranche of updated archival information to support Vietnamese recovery efforts. He also pledged to help Vietnam explore new, smarter technologies to accelerate and streamline search and recovery operations. Likewise, we know that the U.S. government's efforts to clean up uh, dioxin, support people with disabilities, and remove unexploded ordnance are necessary and important parts of the War Legacy mission. Much of the work to address these specific issues is led by uh, the United States Agency for International Development. It's great to be reconnected with Michael Schiffer here after years uh, apart uh, and to, to hear his personal experience with all of this, which I have to say is quite touching. Uh, thank you, Michael, for, the, for that. Uh, so often the work that USAI doing is, is, doing with, uh, is with funds from the Department of Defense, and we're uh, very proud of the partnership that we have uh, with USAID. Uh, DOD is working closely uh, through this partnership to support, support the dioxin remediation. Uh, cleanup efforts included at uh, Da Nang Airport in 2008. 18, and we recently embarked on an important 10-year project to restore Bien Hoa Air Base and its surrounding areas. I'm also proud to note that since 1989, DOD and USAID donated over $100 million to improve the quality of life of more than 1 million Vietnamese people with disabilities. Moreover, to date, we have helped remove more than 700,000 pieces of unexploded ordnance while educating hundreds of thousands of Vietnam citizens on risks associated with undetonated mines. 
During Secretary Austin's visit to Hanoi last year, he avowed that the long process to heal the wounds of war is essential to expanding our cooperation and building our partnership. Uh, our cooperation to address war legacies has built a strong foundation for cooperation in many other areas, including peacekeeping operations, humanitarian assistance and disaster response, maritime security, and military medicine. We are looking at opportunities to expand cooperation even further into the areas of cybersecurity, defense trade and technology, and aviation. Frankly, the, there is no limit to the opportunities that we have together. We've also worked seamlessly together in the fight against COVID-19. To date, the United States has transferred more than 40 million vaccines and critical <coughs> medical equipment to Vietnam, whose approach and overall response to the pandemic has been nothing short of exemplary and a model for other countries to follow in the region. Our collective work responding to the COVID-19 pandemic has also paved the way to prevent and control the spread of other infectious diseases and develop sound frameworks for responses to future pandemics and epidemics. Another highlight of our growing relationship is the development of flood resilient infrastructure throughout Vietnam. Together we have built more than 100 flood resilient schools, clinics and bridges and 14 disaster management coordination centers across the country. We are also collaborating extensively uh, to enhance Vietnam's maritime domain awareness and help it protect its sovereign rights through its exclusive economic zone. Notably, these areas of expanded cooperation are vitally important for economic development, peace and global security. And they reaffirm our commitment to a strong, prosperous, and independent Vietnam. In the spirit of our growing partnership, however, we need to ensure we are being transparent on issues that can create challenges for expanded cooperation, specifically in the Indo-Pacific region. In particular, the United States is sensitive to Vietnam's position in the region and its need to maintain non-escalatory and balanced foreign relations. The United States approach to the Indo-Pacific region is simple. We believe in a free and open Indo-Pacific rooted in international rules and norms. And further, we believe that each country within that region should be independent and free to determine its own course and to promote a system of values that ensures opportunity for even the smallest of countries to thrive free from coercion. The U.S.-Vietnam co Comprehensive Partnership has played a key role in advancing these shared strategic goals for the region, and that burgeoning relationship was made possible through our foundational work in the war legacy arena. The United States and Vietnam have made extraordinary progress over the last several decades in overcoming past animosities and building a positive partnership that not only benefits our peoples, but the broader Indo-Pacific region and the world in general. While much work remains, dedicated people have worked hard to resolve these issues in a way that address the humanitarian concerns while contributing to the pillar of stability and prosperity in the region and setting a positive example for the rest of the world to follow. If there is one message that I would want to leave you with today, it is that the United States is engaged and ready to cooperate with you deeper uh, in deeper and more meaningful ways uh, to en enhance our bilateral relationship and global security. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thanks, Jed. Um, we have a te about 10 more minutes for this part of the panel before we, we, we remove a chair and, and, and change chairs. So I'm going to go directly to Andrew Wells-Dung, who has been uh, curating questions in the first row. Andrew. 
Yeah, thank you. So an opening question for Ambassador Ning and perhaps also for other speakers. Do you think there's an endpoint to the healing from war? Uh, how would we know when we've gotten there? Or are we already there? Uh, if not yet, what needs to happen now almost 50 years after the end of the war to get to that point? Thanks. Uh, I've been wont to say that uh, the paradox, the irony is that uh, the uh, normalization and, and healing and reconciliation between uh, the Vietnamese inside the country with uh, non-Vietnamese Americans has been moving faster and more smoothly than with uh, the Vietnamese American community. Um, and this is a paradox, because you would think, you know, with <coughs> everything I said about culture, identity, you know, family, native place, and that sort of thing, it would help the rapprochement. But as I said, you know, uh, because uh, a few uh, members of the uh, community here are being obsessed by the past, they, they cannot overcome. I will use the word overcome. If we inside a country, we can overcome, then we hope that within the community here, they will also overcome and look forward. Anyway, I mentioned it, the younger ones. They are voting with their feet. They are finding opportunities back in Vietnam. And vice versa, young Vietnamese educated in the US sometimes find better opportunities here. These are facts of life. So what I'm saying is it's still a process. It's gone forward a bit faster in the past decade or so. But I think we need to be proactively engaged to push it forward more effectively. And for that, I think, as I said, you know, in a bit abstract way, let's find common grounds. There are common grounds. But for that, you need practical initiatives. Yesterday, I was, I was having lunch uh, with Erin, uh, Steinhauser, uh, the wife of the relatively well-known uh, uh, photographer who's done wonderful, beautiful photographs of Vietnam. And uh, she said that she has started a <coughs> society to do precisely that. Uh, I have uh, spoke online uh, via Zoom with Kenneth Nguyen in California, uh, who was born obviously in California, but who has interviewed more than 100 overseas Vietnamese, and mostly Vietnamese American, and is very curious and supportive of doing things together among Vietnamese, regardless of where you, you were born or where you live. So I would say that the process needs to be, continue to be carried forward. Uh, but I think it's encouraging, but it means we need to work at it. It won't happen of itself and, and by itself. Uh, and so we hope that our American friends, non-Vietnamese American friends, will also help. 
those that travel regularly to Vietnam, perhaps you could take a few retis uh, still reticent Vietnamese American along with you. Why not? Well, I'll just take the opportunity to you know, put in one plug for the work we're trying to do here at USIP. We did a series of online dialogues on different war legacies topics over the last year, five of them in total. Uh, and uh, you know, just to speak for myself, uh, perhaps the most interesting one was a youth dialogue. Uh, and there was a, a heavy emphasis on uh, Vietnamese American inclusion. And so people who didn't experience the war, Americans, Vietnamese American, uh, non-Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese, how do they think about the war? And this is a, a line of work that, that we hope to, to, to continue and build on uh, with partners in Vietnam. Andrew? Yeah, second question for Jed Royal, and again, others who would like to comment. There are both military and civilian authorities involved in mm -hmm. healing the wounds of war and war legacies. How do you see the relationship between those and how can they work better together both in the US and in Vietnam and other countries? Thanks for that question. Um, I, th I think the answer is we have to work symbiotically uh, with each other. There are going to be touch points. Um, some of the tactile elements of this that government is simply just not well positioned to, to feel and to understand. Um, those who are deeply committed to this uh, mission uh, need to be uh, we in government need to be making sure that we're soliciting that information from them, building that into the way that we think uh, about our management of resources, about the way that we manage our time, and overall the, the rhetorical approach that we're taking on the state of bilateral relations and multilateral relations. Uh, I, just to, to reflect on the previous question for a moment as well, I do very much hope for healing in this relationship um, and, and that we do find a, an end point because we all want to be whole. Um, but I certainly hope that we don't forget and healing should never come at the uh, expense of forgetting and we need to make sure that we are building in that memory uh, into the way that we think about our role and responsibilities uh, today as government officials and we rely deeply on the civil society to help us understand that and appreciate that as we go through the process. So you can, you can be assured that uh, the Department of Defense is very open to those conversations, uh, very interested in those conversations consistently. Thank you. Andrew? <coughs> Michael, unless you want to jump. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, uh, to, to build off of Jed's uh, Last point about the, the importance of civil society, I guess I'll just offer on the uh, civil-military cooperation question when it comes to, to addressing some of the war legacies, um, that, the, that there is another piece of this puzzle, which is civil society actors, NGOs, and, and local communities. Uh, and it's often the, uh, the civil society actors who are most in touch with the people in the local communities and have the best sense of what their, uh, of what their needs are. Uh, and so in addition to making sure that our two military and civilian uh, development uh, establishments are, are working together, um, both our interagency here in Washington uh, and, and its equivalent in, in Hanoi, um, we also need to be working effectively with uh, the NGOs and the civil society actors in local communities um, to make sure that we actually uh, understand and are responsive to their needs. Um, when it comes to, uh, to, to war legacies and this process for, for healing. We have I add one this. word, very, very brief, uh, about uh, military to military. I think uh, it is helpful 
to the Vietnamese military or to uh, be in contact and exchanges and training with uh, counterparts from the US or from Australia and so on and so forth. I have in mind uh, the uh, rather tight, you know, close cooperation uh, between our military, the peacekeeping operation unit within the, the Ministry of Defense, a very close cooperation with the, their Australian counterpart, and it has helped uh, us deploy very successfully uh, field ho two or three field hospitals in South Sudan. And to me, uh, in a sense, this is the kind of cooperation that fosters person-to-person, -person, you know, less formal or, as I understand, military uh, uh, discipline and uh, rigor, you know, perhaps uh, lends, uh, lends itself less to these kinds of contact than training for, say, peacekeeping operations, which I'm really happy that Vietnam has started moving into, uh, first with field hospitals and I now see even also with uh, engineering. Um, and so uh, I don't know whether the U.S. is cooperating on that at all. I know that uh, the Australians are uh, and I believe that there is a sort of uh, kind of uh, psychologically speaking it helps our own military uh, enter into uh, less formal or rigid contacts with their uh, international uh, counterpart. Just a, a thought, yeah. We have time for one more. So we have several questions from Vietnamese American participants in person and online. Uh, saying they're grateful for U.S.-Vietnamese cooperation on finding remains and on war legacy issues. So maybe I'll ask uh, Michael Schiffer, how can Vietnamese Americans be more involved in the humanitarian assistance and cooperation that USAID is doing and also other agencies? Uh, well, I mean, to, to pick up on, uh uh, you know, my, my previous comments, I think they can, you know, the, the Vietnamese American communities here, uh, whether it's reaching out through their members of Congress uh, or engaging with, with USAID, with the Department of Defense, the Department of State, um, can certainly help us uh, in our thinking uh, about where, where we need to be focused, where the real problems are, um, and what the issues are that, that, that need to be addressed. Um, and that, you know, includes both um, the sort of immediate health or environmental or, or other needs of people in Vietnam. Uh, it also includes, uh, you know, how we go about continuing to be mindful and aware of the, uh, the, the tender spot that, will that still exists and will, will always exist uh, in, in this relationship. Um, so that we can continue um, continue to, uh, to to understand each other better, uh, to, to draw closer, uh, and to find for forgiveness and closure uh, for a tragic period in, in, in both of our histories. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, um, 
that we could keep on going clearly, but uh, we promise that you'll get back to your offices and also we have an incredible agenda for the next two days. Um, so we're gonna soon transition to the second part of our, our plenary here uh, without a break, but first, please join me in thanking our fantastic panel. Thank you so much for taking the time. Again in 24 hours, uh, tomorrow from, from 9 to 10.30 online with another incredible panel of non-government and, and, and government uh, experts. Um, but I'm thrilled that we could uh, have the second part, and we, we thought it was about to get a little too crowded on the, on the stage here with five, it turned out, so we, we decided to put it into two, two parts. But I think um, you know, one thing, if you've even just read the, the, the title of the day's event, um, and, and that is Dialogue on War Legacies and Peace in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, we were very intentional here in thinking about what we wanted to do over the course of these two days, whether this was all gonna be about US-Vietnam uh, relations, U.S.-Vietnam cooperation, but uh, you know, we very quickly, uh, went thinking about this, um, you know, recognize, of course, that this was a, a regional war that touched many people, um, those who live outside of Vietnam uh, during the war um, and the diaspora today. And so, wanted to include the co conversation about uh, Laos and Cambodia, and we're absolutely thrilled to have two just just incredible uh, um, people to join our panel to get us kicked off. Um, we're going to start um, on the far side uh, with um, Luang Ung, who we're absolutely thrilled to have here uh, at USIP today, I think for the first time. Uh, she is a best-selling author, public speaker, activist, and co-screenplay writer of First They Killed My Father, a critically acclaimed 2017 movie directed with Angelina Jolie based on our memoir that is streaming on, on Netflix. Uh, Luong started her activism work in 1993 as the community educator for a domestic shelter in the state of Maine. And since then, she's worked on various campaigns to end violence against women and the use of child soldiers to eradicate landmines globally. In 1995, uh, Luong made her first trip back to Cambodia, and she's returned over 40 times since, uh, really devoting herself to helping her native land heal from the traumas of war. In addition to her best-selling book, First They Killed My Father, Luong is also the author of Lucky Child and Lulu in the Sky, and a contributor writer on the film Girl Rising, directed by the award-winning director, Richard Robbins. And I just say on a personal note, uh, you know, I would never forget, and I think anybody who's ever read her book would never forget reading her book. Uh, and, and, and for me, it was, uh, as a recent college graduate, uh, um, traipsing around Southeast Asia, uh, reading everything I could about the region, um, and, and, and her book was one that, that I can never forget. I, I'm, I'm afraid, though, I probably read a, a, a copy that did not uh, get a royalty back to you, uh, as is the case for many. Uh, but Long, let's, let's start with you and uh, with some initial thoughts, uh, and then I'll introduce our next speaker. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's very wonderful to be here with you all. And um, Tim, I see ya. Um, for many of us, all roads in this room and, and outside out there, all roads lead to Tim Reeser and Patrick <laughs> Leahy. Um, and that was mine as well. So Tim, thank you so much for encouraging me to write the, my book um, many, many years ago. And Senator Patrick Leahy, my personal hero. And um, so it's wonderful to be here. When, when I was asked, um, or Andrew wrote me and said, you know, you've got 10 minutes to share your thoughts about healing from the wounds of war. That's like asking somebody to look in the sky and say, you've got 10 minutes to tell me how many stars there are in the sky. 
both are impossible to pinpoint. However, I do think there are some components that are perhaps universal in the issue of healings from the wounds of war. Um, you know, as a Buddhist, we believe that healing um, really entails doing the work for body, mind, and spirit. As a writer, I also think that there are um, components to healings that we should all address, um, especially when we're talking about healings from the wounds of war. And these are multi-pronged, multi-layers, levels or components of healings that that we must serve as a constellation of guiding lights toward the path. And in order to even think about healing, we have to address first the personal, individual healing, as well as the national level of healing, and also our global responsibility and our global work that we all need to do to address the long tails of war. And, and so the national healing for me, and, and of course in 10 minutes, I will just briefly give my thoughts on some of what I think we, we need to look at. On the national level, from 1975 to 1979, Cambodia as a country suffered a collective trauma. Trauma that did not happen to one or three or four of us, but trauma that happened to all seven million of us in a country the size of the state of Oklahoma. Trauma that happened when the Khmer Rouge came into our country on April 17, 1975, and in the span of three years, eight months, and 21 days, went on and enacted, enacted the Marxist-Leninist uh, policy to create a new utopian agrarian society in which money and wealth um, were abolished, power was taken from the um, the poor and the workers of the country and giving to the elites and um, the true re revolutionaries. I'm, I'm assuming all of us here know a little bit of Cambodia, so I won't go into that politics, but a survivor, us a survivor. It was trauma that forced us to live in fear for the next four years of our lives, in which our rights, one by ones, were taken from us. First, the soldiers came into my country, and then they pulled out their bolt horns, and they started screaming to all of us in the city to leave our homes. And if we did not leave, the, American, the Americans and their B-52 metal killing birds would come into the nation, bomb our skies and our land, and we would all be killed. And then we were forced to live in villages for the next four years that were more akin to labor camps. And in which every day was a Monday, and every Monday a work day. And it didn't matter if you were six or 60. You dug trenches, you built dams, you grew food, that then the trucks came in and took the food away, came back with guns and arms to support a war you didn't vote for, you didn't want, you didn't understand, but you had no voice. That was the trauma. You could not speak up. Anybody and everybody who refused and disagreed with their the Khmerish communist policies were viewed as enemies of the state. And the solution for these enemies of the state was to purge or crush them. So while we lived in fear and starved one by one, the soldiers came and collected the doctors, the lawyers, the architects, the dancers, and had them executed en masse. And still, in a place like that, everywhere they looked, they saw more enemies more traitors, so they sent out more soldiers. And this time they collected the daughters and the sons and the fathers and the mothers of the people they killed and they had these ex them executed.
That was my trauma. Cambodia as a country went through this collective trauma together. By the end of the Khmer Rouge regime on January 7, 1979, when I was nine years old, an estimated of 1.7 to 2 million Cambodians would perish from starvation, disease, hard labor, execution, out of a population of 7 million people. Over a quarter of the people's, of the country's population. Among the victims were both my parents, two sisters, and 20 other relatives. And so I'm very passionate and have been following the tribunal that had been established and, and long history and complicated history that started in 1997 when the two prime ministers went and asked the UN to help create a hybrid tribunal or a tribunal that eventually after 10 years of negotiation became a hybrid Cambodian UN tribunal to put on trials key leaders of the Khmer's for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. This past September 22nd, the tribunal officially closed after it um, officially closed, which after having spent 16 years and $337 million to convict all of three old men. There were observers who were critical of the tribunal itself. Completely, yes, a very flawed system. $370 million to convict three old men. I might have agreed with that had I not been a survivor. I might have believed that that was money not well spent had I not been a survivor. As a survivor, the numbers that matter more to me are two millions of seven million people, two parents, two sisters, 20 relatives, and the five million survivors who know very little of what happened to their family members. As a survivor, what the tribunal did was to push to gather information that we did not exist, that we did not know where to find. And it was the funding and the push to start and led by man, uh, DC CAM, the Cambodian Documentation Center, and their team of researchers that went out to the 35 provinces in Cambodia to gather multiple millions of documents that are now gathered in a centralized location. So that we now, if we need to know, when we're ready to know, can find this information. And also the push of work to map out 20,000 mass graves in a country the size of the state of Oklahoma. Mass graves that once Cambodian kids thought were merely perhaps bomb shelters or craters or ponds that turn out to house and turn out to be the graves of over a million skull of somebody's loved ones Majority of them were not killed with bullets, but, a, but blunt instruments to the back of their heads. So as a country, Cambodia needed this tribunal for more than anything, I think, for the residual, for the information gatherer, and for the education for the descendants of all the people killed and for the people who survived. Um, so that, that for me is briefly the national level, the, the individual level. This is something I know well through my writing and through my work, and it was why I went to Cambodia for that first time in 1995, and why I've been back to Cambodia on over 40 trips, and why I keep going and keep telling the story of Cambodia. 
Healings from the wounds of war requires that we also heal ourselves because are we not part of this world? Are we not all eight billion of us part of this world? And we are to heal on this greater issue. We also have to look at our own individual personal story. For Americans and for my friends, my story is very unimaginable. For the Cambodians I know, my story is not unique. For the 100, 120, 160 million people in our world who have gone through wars, my story is not unique. I have friends who were once one of eight and are now the only survivor. I have friends who are like me when they go back to Cambodia and they look at that sunset. It is not beauty they see, but horrors and hell. I have haunted nightmares in Cambodia that have taken me many years to create new memories to overshadow or at least fade the memories of the war. Of the last sunset I remember being aware of in Cambodia when the soldiers came for my father. And as they walked my father off with guns on their back into the sunset and I looked at that sky and the gods that night had painted this palette of gold, magenta, red, and pink, shimmering in its multiple divine colors. All I felt was hate in my heart. And all I asked was, why did the world not see this? How was it possible that people in other parts of the world were seeing this beautiful sunset when I only saw hell? How was it possible, but when I looked at that sun, I wished for it to be a weapon that would explode and take me out and take all of us out. There was rage, there was hurt, and that was kind of memories that would take me many decades to build upon. For the truth, the truth is too hard to bear. That in a country the size of the state of Oklahoma, we have over 20,000 mass graves. Majority of them were killed with blunt instruments to the back of their heads, smashed to the back of their heads. For my friends and I, who are Cambodians, our wish today and our wish then when I was nine years old continued to be that I hope and pray the soldiers use one of their bullets to end my father's life, to make his death quick and painless. What do other children of the world pray for when they were seven? What do they wish for for their children? I am heartened and happy to say that in 1975, Cambodia had all of two psychiatrists. In a country that was Buddhist in nature, we believe in astrology and animism and luck, that the, we now have 60 psychiatrists. And that the destigmatization of mental issues and mental illness is now much more accepted. 60 psychiatrists for 16 million people. Imagine that. I am heartened that still it is shifting and it is changing because when you listen to Cambodia, we don't talk about the wars, we don't talk about the horrors, but we will tell you ghost stories and being possessed and a monster coming in. But if you listen closely, you hear residual talks of what these possessions, what they look like, what they did. And lastly, very briefly, our global healing, what we need to do and what we need to admit to ourselves and each other. When I came to America and I went to school and I studied Russian history, American history, Vietnamese history even, there was perhaps one whole sentence on Cambodia. 
and it enraged me and it confused me. For how is it possible that we don't talk about Cambodia, that we don't know Cambodia, when in fact, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge might have not happened had the U.S. war not moved over to Cambodia. And the bombings bombed Cambodia and dropped half a million tons of bombs onto a neutral country at that time. And it succeeded in killing anywhere between 150 to 200,000 Cambodians and destabilized the land, pushing the farmers off, moving them into the, village, into the city where there was no food, no shelters, no safety. And then opening up the borders, there's lots of discussions on how Sihanouk, the ruling of the time, was ousted from power. But we do know Lonnell, his replacement, ex opened the war, brought in the U.S., and then the war full-fledged came to Cambodia. And when the U.S. left Vietnam and left Cambodia, the Khmeris went from a couple of thousand ragtag guerrilla troops in the jungle to many thousands taking over the country. How is it that in my class, I never heard of Cambodia? And in college, I had to go and buy my own books about Cambodia. And that Cambodia somehow is never a part of Vietnam legacy. That should not be. We in this global world to talk about global healing has to address the long tails of war and that wars do not stay within borders, especially when the borders was broken open, when wars went into our country. But wars, ricochet in its tails, does not end when guns fall silent and does not stay when we are so intertwined and move about. I know I'm coming upon my time. What gives me hope? is that we are telling our own stories. That our Cambodians are telling it as dancers, as musicians, as writers, as activists, as policymakers. What give me hope on the talk, healing from the wound of wars, is that the heart, our human heart, is the most vital organ in the human body. And for as many times as it breaks, with assistance, with education, with awareness, it has the ability and capability to heal. Thank you, Long. Powerful and inspiring. But time is short, so we will move on to uh, our, our next speaker to make sure we have a little bit of time. Uh, once again, Andrew Wells-Dung will be collecting questions um, online and in person. So if you have one in person, please please note it down on a piece of paper. Our, our last speaker is going to be Sarah Gulabdara, who serves as Executive Director of Legacies of War. Uh, it's the only international US-based advocacy and educational organization working to address the impacts of the American secret war in Laos and conflict in neighboring countries of Cambodia and Vietnam during the Vietnam War era, including the removal of unexploded ordnance and victor and survival assistance. Um, before taking on this new role, Sarah was a longtime volunteer and served on Legacies Board uh, for, for five years, uh, so she was the per perfect person to take over. And under her leadership, US funding for UXO clearance and 
in Laos has reached $45 million, the largest level in history. And I'll also say that uh, uh, if anybody has uh, run into Sarah, you'll, you'll know that she's been working with some key members of Congress to really scale this assistance in by considerable orders of magnitude. So over to you, Sarah. We'd love to hear about your work uh, and, and, and how we should think about Laos um, in this story. Great. Thank you, Brian. And thank you so much uh, to USIP for inviting me um, to be a part of today's very, very important discussion. Uh, thanks especially to my friend Andrew for the invitation and Ginny for all her coordination. I don't know where she is. Um, but um, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be with all of you here today. Um, I see so many friends in the audience um, and I know many tuning in online. Um, so I was actually born and raised in Laos um, up to the age of six years old. Um, most of my memories, uh, childhood memories, are very, very fun and, and beautiful ones. Um, you know, one in particular, I remember running in the grounds of the ancient Wat Pu in the southern part. Um, you know, it was my favorite thing to chase um, the cats, goats, and the notorious uh, monkeys. Um, you know, um, every time I think about these wonderful childhood memories of growing up, you know, in, in Laos, um, darker memories would creep in, um, you know, to my thoughts. You see, my father was a surgeon, and he worked on countless victims of UXO accidents or unexploded ordnance. And many of these victims that he worked in numerous villages were around the same age as my siblings and I. And I would never remember, I would never forget the blood and their cries when my father had to do emergency surgery on them. During that time, 1990, when I was six years old, there was no professional demining organization working in Laos. And my parents just saw a very, very bleak and just dangerous future for their children. So we ended up fleeing to the United States. And we landed right here in our nation's capital. I remember it being a cold day. And for the first time in my life, I was riding in a fast-moving car, huge highway, passing countless majestic monuments, the White House, the Pentagon. As a child, I was in awe, and I was wonderstruck by all of these images. I still am today. But back then, as a six-year-old, I had no idea the connection and the deep history between the United States my new home, and my birthplace of Laos. I had no idea that from 1964 to 1973, the US dropped over 2.5 million tons of ordnance during 580,000 bombing mission over Laos. That's equivalent to a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day, for nine straight years earning Laos the unwanted title of being the most bombed country per capita in history. Over 700,000 people were killed, maimed, or became refugees. Like my own family, 
who had to flee. If that wasn't enough suffering, 30% of these bombs fell to detonate on impact, leaving millions of cluster bombs the size of a tennis ball scattered all throughout every 18 provinces in Laos. And of these 18 provinces, 50% are considered severely contaminated, meaning farmers can't till their land. This hinders progress. This hinders a child from walking to school in safety, roads building. It hinders literally all aspects of Laos life, of life in Laos. Since the war has ended, about 25,000 people, at least 25,000 people, are still being injured or killed by these unexploded ordnance. 40% of the victims are children, meaning those under the age of 18. You know, today, as a Lao American, I'm proud to represent uh, Legacies of War as the new director. Because the good news is, you know, there is a solution to this problem. And if we work together, we can rid Laos of these unexploded ordnance. And legacies exist because this is a contemporary issue, and it's a humanitarian issue, and it deserves our attention, constant attention. While the war has been over for nearly 50 years, people's lives are still impacted today. And legacies address this problem in three different ways. The first is our grassroots advocacy efforts that Brian mentioned. Um, the second, is our educational work. The third is building the next pipeline of leaders to carry forth the torch, because um, I plan to retire one day. So let me talk to you about our advocacy effort. You know, Legacies of War is the leading voice in terms of pushing for increased funding for Laos since our founding in 2004. So back in those days, funding was a little under $3 million to today, 45 million that Brian shared, the highest funding level in history. And funding increases makes a huge impact. In 2004, the number of deaths and injuries was around 300 per year. Fast forward to the past three years, under 50. Under 50, that's a huge progress. And there's still more work to be done, which is why we will continue to work with congressional champions like Senator Leahy and Tem Reeser and others to make sure that funding for Laos continue to increase. Second, I also you know, believe that our country can do a lot more than just funding because cluster bombs, landmines are indiscriminate weapons. They can't tell the difference between a child or a combatant. So we need to join in with other NATO members and ban these weapons. You know, I hope that in the next two years or so, uh, Congress and President Biden will accede to the Mine Ban Treaty as well as the Convention on Cluster Munition, taking a stance that the U.S. is a leader in humanitarian issue, that we will join 
the hundred other countries that have already acceded to these two international treaties. The second piece of our work, you know, I love what you said about not learning, though I don't love that you didn't learn about Cambodian history, but while the American Secret War is a part of American history, it is not taught in American schools. So legacies of war address this in several different ways. The first one is our podcast, uh, which I hope you all will tune in. Um, the executive producer of this is in this room, Alina Intali. This is very short, 15 to 20 minutes uh, interviews with demining partners like mine advisory groups, um, as well as survivors, as well as environmental experts talking you know, about the importance of mine action work in very short, simple to listen to clips. The second is one that I'm particularly very proud of. Um, we call this the Legacies Library. And this is a repository of information all related to the American Secret War in the forms of documentaries, books, articles, and other. And hopefully in the future, when we build greater capacity at Legacies of War, we can also include more on Cambodian history and Vietnam history as well. Our crowning jewel in our Legacies Library, um, we call them the originals. This is a collection of illustrations um, and, and written um, testimony from survivors and victims of the US bombings themselves. This is the only primary source documentation that exists from survivors from this time period. And we have this um, house at Legacies of War. I just wanna share briefly one of the images, just because you know I think like many of you, I've been following the war in Ukraine. And this one, you know, you know exactly why I chose it. But this is an image of a burning school building with fires all around it. And the caption that's on this particular illustration reads, the school was hit and burned. There were many people in the school who died. But I didn't know who because I wasn't courageous enough to look. I was afraid that the airplanes would shoot me. That's written by a 16-year-old child watching his school burn. So we preserve these for future generation. And all of the educational content that Legacies of War has is free of charge because we believe that everyone should know about this history, especially Americans. History, storytelling has a way of healing, has a way of allowing victims and survivors to reclaim that narrative, and it's also a form of justice. The very final piece of our work that I wanna highlight is our investment in the next generation of young leaders who want to take mine action, who want to continue to preserve and share this history, who also are doing amazing things interning at Legacies of War. We partner with a variety of different universities all across the United States, one of which my dear friend Paul from the University of Dayton Human Rights Center has an intern with Legacies. And this year, I'm particularly proud that we're able to, the first time in history, bring an intern with us on our annual study trip 
to Laos this year. This is a huge, huge um, you know, investment in the next generation so that they see firsthand experience of what it's like for D-miners to work in the field, to see programs that assist victims and survivors. So I'm really looking forward to the trip this year. In closing, I just want to say that the legacies of war are immeasurable, and the pain stands, spans generations. And there's many, many forms. And healing is slow, but healing is possible with the right actionable. I'm proud of my country, the United States of America, for being the largest single funder globally in demining efforts. The United States invests about 36% of all funding for demining work globally. <coughs> in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, since 1993, we invested $657 million. And I hope that members of Congress and leaders will continue to invest in Southeast Asia and grow this pot of funding so we can find those bombs before a child does. So thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. You know, it's, it's, it's clear that, that for, on the strategic side of things, Congress definitely um, is increasingly focused on Southeast Asia, but making sure we have a, a rich, holistic picture of the situation, our history, what it takes to overcome it. Is, what you're doing is just incredibly important on so many dimensions. Um, Andrew, I know we have time for a couple more questions, and you've, I've seen a lot of cards making their way to you. Yeah, I'd like to thank you both for sharing both personally and uh, nationally and globally about the meaning of healing from war. And this comes, I think, to the heart of USIP's mission as a, as a peace-building organization. Uh, USIP works both in countries that are affected by conflict and coming out of conflict, and also in the US on peace education. And we have one question uh, from the audience that both of you are discussing the lack of coverage of Laos and Cambodia in U.S. schools. Uh, what can educators do to make students more aware and to take action about uh, healing from war? Maybe Lo first? They can teach my book. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really helpful. I mean, they, it's thankfully, they, a lot of them are teaching my books on different university colleges and high school. But, you know, I, I do think also that I always say to students, if you have five minutes, listen to NPR. You know, listen to actual real news. And then you, uh, if you have 11 minutes, listen to Morning Edition. But we need to really get our students to pay attention to real news. And you know, my books, or Ishmael Bay, or you know, Big Toronto, B-Bank, many of where, where stories are, you know, where stories have real relevance to human life, to human beings, and not just snippets and not just um, sound bites. Um, and I really do think it is it is so important that we teach young people the 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 you know the the, the just the importance of learning real news, relevant news, truthful news, as opposed to social media news. Um, and because everything starts with an education and everything starts with knowing what is true and what is false. And um, so 
for me, there's just really starts with education. Yeah, um, you know, one resource that I would recommend is Legacies Library. It's a free online uh, legaciesofwar.org that teachers, professors can access. But I think the main issue here is that it's systematic, right? Like, this isn't taught. I mean, I went to school here in the US, and we maybe spent a day, if not, you know, if a day and a half on the Vietnam War, and Laos was a footnote if we were lucky. But it's educators not knowing themselves sometimes, right? So we can't blame them. But having broader um, outreach, you know, organizations doing the work like ourselves, um, and, and teachers having that interest to make outreach to find curriculum that we have, you know, free of charge. Um, but, you know, I would encourage people to uh, talk to one another about what you learn, you know, or what you know, and encourage people to talk to their members of Congress, you know, and to get this into the school system. I mean, and certainly the, the, the political legacy of the Vietnam War in the United States is, is, is very complicated. So there's a lot that needs to be done, and hopefully with some more distance we can teach the war, understand the war in a more sophisticated way. And I think part of doing that is thinking broader and geographically yeah. as well. So hopefully there, there, there could be opportunities. Um, yeah. I'll add one last piece to this is that the war has impact um, many, many different segments of Americans as well as, you know, 1.5 generations like myself. Um, you know, being um, able to bravely tell the stories like you, right, from a personal um, perspective is powerful. And it also allows people to hear from someone who has that lived experience. But there are many others. Um, you know, I'll just kind of share one of our amazing board member, Jessica Pierce Rotundi, wrote a book, What We Inherit. You know, and this is about finding the place where her uncle's plane crashed in Laos, right? That is a whole different segment of the American public that has been touched by this secret war. So more people need to write, right? And I also just think <laughs> what happened in Cambodia, write, bake, dance, you know, whatever it is that is your expression, just um, to tell your story. But I, I also think it's so important for us, one, we need to learn about Cambodia and Laos and, and its connection to the global world, but also that what happened in Cambodia did not happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. What happened in Cambodia did not just happen to Cambodians. The Khmer Rouge killed 1.72 million people. It, those were crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, not only crimes against Cambodians. Those, those were crimes against all eight billions of us. And therefore, we need to know because this whole history, you know, human history of never again since World War II, never again has become again and again and again in, in Bosnia and Cambodia and Rwanda. And if we don't learn our whole history, if we don't learn our complete history, we will keep on making and repeating the same darn mistakes. And really, we can do better than that. We are humanities. We are human beings. We have free will. We have potentials. We can send people to, again, now to the moon um, for however many times. We, we are it. Until we can leave this and go to Mars and colonize there, this is it. And so we have to learn our global history because what happens in Cambodia 
is not that far to what happened here. And really, is it that unimaginable when we read about Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, of young people who strap on weapons in, we're seeing it in America, all the violence taking place here. When you were raised in hate and you are encouraged to live in hate and you are breed to think hate 24 seven on a daily basis, as a former child soldier, when my parents were killed and the soldier put guns half my body's weight, a third my body's height, and told me to hurt, and told me if I didn't hurt you first, you would hurt me, I have no doubt if the war hadn't ended, I would have been a very efficient soldier. But I am actually an activist for peace because people stepped out of their ways, lent us a helping hand, and helped me to not only survive the war, but to thrive in peace. And that is our work. To create peace, we have to help people get hate out of them, heal their heart, and thrive in peace. And we can do that. We can do so much. And I absolutely, this is what, why I'm so off this. I know we can do it. We can do it because it happened to me. I was the most hateful little kid you could have met when, you, when, when I was young. And I would have no doubt, small, but I could probably take a lot of people out. Um, at least I believe that I probably could. But you know, I'm choosing to use my voice differently because I was taught and shown by Patrick Leahy, by Tim Reeser, by Bobby Mueller, by Andrew, to do things differently, to create peace and not fight war. Long, Sarah, we're, we're honored that you're able to join us. We thank you for taking the time. Uh, I think we've got, had an incredible kickoff to our, our two days here, uh, a, a diversity of, of views of which is flashback uh, and, and topics of which is flashback 45 minutes ago when Michael, Judd, and Bassar Nin were sitting up here. So um, please join me in thanking our two panelists again. Reminder, we'll be online tomorrow morning as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.